Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Carolyn Jasek. She is the Chief Medical Officer for Omada Health. Carolyn, thanks for joining me. Thank you. So as I do with all of my guests, if you would, uh, tell us just a little bit about your background and the context of how you arrived here. You're a physician, um, but, you know, it's, it's more than that. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Thank you. So I am a pediatrician by training, and I came to medicine really from the get-go because I was interested in impacting healthcare at scale. My undergraduate degree was in health policy, and I've always been thinking about how can I be a part of solutions that will change healthcare, in particular in the U.S., for the better. And I started out in health policy and worked a lot in underserved communities, thinking about community interventions for underserved groups. And then I got bit by the bug of technology early in my career and realized, wow, technology is a way to reach even more people, especially in the community, in their homes, where so much of healthcare happens that we can't touch from traditional care. And from there, started to incorporate technology into my research and then ended up leaving academia and joining the circus, so to speak, and now work in virtual care at Omada Health, where I direct our clinical research, clinical innovation, and oversee uh, the clinicians who work with our members. Fantastic. So just to be clear, when you talk about, you know, the, the technology helping clinicians, I, I, I want to qualify that a little bit because I certainly got bitten by the bug and that's part of me. But one of the things that I, I think we've certainly done with some of the technology is not help clinicians. And I think the more that we see clinical input participation, the better, because it, it really requires some insight. And even though I was involved, I'll I'll hold my hand up and say I was in part responsible for the electronic medical record, which I don't think has been a, a, a outright win, <laughs> unfortunately. So um, we're we're here to talk about you know some of the management of chronic diseases. Um, you know, there's a host of them, and there's lots of paths to uh, uncover. But the reality is that an awful lot of them are tied back to a, a, a overwhelming problem. Um, that we see in this country, certainly around the world, and that's obesity. And, you know, it, it felt intractable in many instances. We struggled with it. I think we've seen lots of examples of trying to address it. And I know that Amada is, certainly sees that as front and center. But just, I'm going to say recently, it feels recently, I know they have a long history to this point, but we've seen the emergence of these GLP drugs. And it's like this sudden revolution. Hey, we've got a pill for it. We've we've we finally have a solution. This is the answer. But it's not quite as simple as that, is it? No, it certainly is not. What we've seen over and over with new obesity treatments, because of the prevalence, as you mentioned, there's so much hope and expectation is a new treatment will come along, whether it's a medicine or a surgery. 
And there will be so much hope and excitement that this will be the thing that will finally solve the challenge. And GLP-1s are fantastic medications. They're associated with a tremendous amount of weight loss, but they also come with some other components. And that was true for bariatric surgery as well. Bariatric surgery is very effective, but it came with lifelong alterations to people's metabolism. GLPs, same thing. They come with side effects. They come with a high cost. Their supply chain challenges. And so the implementation and the rollout of these medicines has turned out to really shine a light on what is the true potential of treatments like this. And I would argue that there is no panacea in weight loss. Uh, treatments like GLPs are enormously helpful, especially as a kickstart for somebody who's really struggling to get their lifestyle change going. But as we saw with bariatric surgery, eventually after the weight comes off or after you plateau on the medicine, you need to look again at behavior change and you just can't have one without the other. Yeah, I, I, I would say maybe not after the fact. I think it should be a concurrent. I mean, maybe that's one of the challenges that we have with this sort of, oh, we've got a solution. I, I say pill. I know it's not pill at this point, but, you know, it probably seems like it might move that way. Um, let, let's talk just a little bit, if you can, about the, the backdrop to this. I mean, these are they're not entirely new drugs. We've known about them. We've been using them for diabetes for a while, very effective. And it was almost like a, a side effect we discovered, a bit like um, Viagra, if I recall. That was a side effect that, you know, unrecognized, and now it becomes a sort of primary use case. Are we moving to that point? Is it moving away from the diabetes and now it's, you know, serving to essentially work as an anti-obesity medication? Well, by the numbers, in a sense, yes, because there are so many more people who have obesity without diabetes uh, or who have prediabetes with their obesity. I will say that, yes, we've known about these medications for over a decade. They're enormously effective, and we need to, of course, get the medicines to the diabetes population first, and there have been supply chain issues due to the excitement on the obesity side. But absolutely, there's, there's uh, many, many more patients who can benefit from these medicines that have obesity alone, obesity and overweight. And uh, for that reason, a lot of the attention has shifted. And interestingly, when the manufacturers uh, put in for the FDA uh, approval, they applied separately for the obesity indication under a new brand name. And I think that that has further uh, led to a lot of excitement within the obesity world that it felt like a new medicine but uh, they aren't, in fact, new. They're the same agents that have been used for diabetes. And I imagine that even if it's a different name, it's still coming from the same supply manufacturer, so there's still going to be the same problems. That doesn't solve the supply chain problem. So we've got a number of players in the space. I mean, we're not here to sort of promote or, you know, deal with individuals, but, you know, there's been a lot. It's hard to keep up with the latest in terms of, publications, uh, you know, details. Share, if you will, a little bit of the backdrop as you watch this, um, as we see more studies emerge to give us better insight into the effectiveness of the drugs and how they work and what the sort of long-term consequences are, if you could. Absolutely. Well, first, I will give a brief shout out, if it's okay, to Close Concerns and Eric Topol. That's where I get all my information on the latest with GLPs. Well, they, I'd be happy to shout out to him as well. Good friend, and I agree, 100%. 
Yeah. So uh, whenever I want to know the latest on any study that has happened, I, I start with both of those newsletters. And the research is overwhelming. The pipeline is enormous. There's probably over 50 agents, I think, at the last time that I counted uh, in this field. And it's not just GLP alone mechanism. There are double agonists, triple agonists uh, coming out. We started with semaglutide, uh, which was under the brand name Govi through uh, Novo Nordisk. We now have terzepatide, which is under Lilly. That's a that's a dual agonist. We will have a triple agonist pretty soon. And it's a very uh, rich and um, busy pipeline of lots of different kinds of medications with uh, many different mechanisms of action. And it seems that with each new agent that comes out, the primary difference is more weight loss. What I am hoping to see is uh, medications that have less side effects and the GI side effects in particular. I'm especially excited to hope that we will have agents that will come with the um, benefit of the weight loss without the side effects. Yeah. So side effects is always important. And, you know, that's part of the risk reward that everybody thinks about. Um, Well, at least I hope they do. I know I do, but um, as as I've looked at the literature, it seems as if that's having an impact, but it's not always highlight. I mean, inevitably it's not, except as the person that speaks faster than anything I could possibly understand on the advertising. Um, what is the consequences of that? And how is that going to impact the long-term of this? Are we are we going to see this as a tail? How, how is all that playing out? I think it's well. There, there, there are several different aspects of GLPs that I feel like aren't discussed enough. This, the side effects uh, are one of those. So we see in our members, Omada is a, a lifestyle um, intervention and diabetes management solution for cardio. Um, metabolic disease. So we have thousands and thousands of members going through. We have an uh, enormous amount of information on these medications coming through. And what we're hearing is uh, nausea, vomiting, um, diarrhea. These are uncomfortable side effects for people who are trying to live their life. Now, as people balance that against being able to lose weight that they have been trying to lose for many years, many patients feel that the benefit outweighs the disadvantage of the side effects. However, as time goes on and their weight uh, starts to get closer to their goal and the expense starts to add up, that balance between those side effects and those other disadvantages starts to dwindle. And many patients uh, decide to discontinue the medication because the side effects are no longer tolerable. There is a certain percentage of people, and this is part of the titration uh, process with the medicine, who do get through a side effect phase and are able to live without side effects on this medicine, but there are a substantial number of people that persist uh, with with side effects and and choose to discontinue once they've had the weight loss. So I, a couple of things. So we'll have to come back to the, the other risk reward, which is economic. But before we leave, you know, the side effects issue, you talk about the discontinuation do we have a decent sense of what that means? Is this, uh, hey, I've taken it, I've achieved this, and I'm good to go? What's Where does that leave us? Well, we're still waiting on definitive real-world evidence for the indication of obesity. But if we look at the diabetes population, we see numbers as high as 50% of people who discontinue the medication. These are people who are taking the medicine for a very important 
chronic disease with life-threatening complications. So for individuals who have achieved their treatment goal and are at their goal weight and don't need the medicine for something like diabetes, I, I worry that we will see even higher discontinuation rates. And after discontinuation, there uh, many patients are really left to uh, maintain that weight on their own, and it's it's a big ask. So for those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Carolyn Jasek. She is the chief medical officer with Omada Health. We were just talking about the GLP agonists um, and the whole challenge of side effects, continuation of um, the therapy, um, and the challenges of people sort of dropping off in, uh, you know, as you described for diabetics. So that's a, a specific condition. And I imagine that you know, if you cease the medication, assuming that the diabetes is resolved, and we've seen that with other therapies, to be clear, um, are they maintaining that um, reversal of the diabetes and, and being diabetic free? Well, so uh, we, it's a semantics issue, but we talk about remission of diabetes uh, more than reversal. I don't mm -hmm. want it. It's a little bit of a hot button for me. <laughs> My apologies. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I didn't mean to jump over no, that. No. I'm glad you corrected me. There are two camps. There are the ones that use the word remission and the ones that use the word re reversal. So uh, the data are that uh, the primary mechanism for putting your diabetes in remission is weight loss. <laughs> so patients who are able, that we've had, that are able to lose the weight and maintain it, absolutely can keep their diabetes in remission. But if they regain the weight, uh, the diabetes will come back. And that's why I, I uh, prefer the word remission is mm -hmm. because the physiology of diabetes remains. Your insulin resistance, your risk for insulin resistance, that doesn't reverse, that goes into hibernation. And the way that you keep that at bay is maintaining the important lifestyle changes that got you to the point of losing the weight. I will also add that GLP-1s in the diabetes population do result in weight loss, but they do not result in the level of weight loss that uh, we see for the obese, obesity alone indication. There's a few reasons for that. There's some dosing differences. There's some physiological barriers. But in the diabetes population, when people put their diabetes in remission, it's it's not necessarily just because of GLP-1s. It, mm. it more than likely came with a huge commitment by the individual into um, lifestyle change. And that puts them in a good position to be able to maintain that afterward. Just as you said, it needs to go along together, right, at, at the same time. But these are highly motivated patients because they, they have a serious disease, diabetes, mm. and so they will often um, engage in those lifestyle changes because they're so committed. Essentially, you know, buried within that, I think good news, you know, the opportunity to put patients into remission. And, I, you know, there's a part of me that would say that's true for obesity. If, you know, for most of us, I know there are some people that seem to navigate life without those challenges. But, you know, I think most of us will hold up our hand and say that, you know, we have those challenges. Um what about the issue of economics? I mean, this this is a fundamental challenge, and particularly given that, the, I'm not going to say the majority, but a large proportion of our population is not able to access just general health care, let alone a very expensive drug as these are. Where are we on the economic justification and, you know, capability to be able to offer this as a, a realistic solution? 
Well, if you are a policy wonk, health policy wonk like me, uh, this is just, uh, if anybody is, this is this is just a, a really interesting time right now. And I'm, I'm so glad that I have a front row seat to it because it is pushing to the very forefront of people's attention, at least in the United States, some major challenges we have around access to healthcare. So we have an enormously expensive and effective medication for for uh, an indication that the probably about 50 to 60% of America could be eligible, right? Adult America, because of the levels of obesity and overweight. If you took the FDA uh, in, you know, approval by, by, to the letter, mm -hmm. it's, it's um, even just to be conservative, let's say half of America could be eligible for adults could be eligible for this medicine. How do you solve that? How do you solve that problem? It's a public health emergency. It's highly prevalent, but then you also have a medication that is enormously expensive. And this is the healthcare system that we have. Our amazing advances uh, that we have that the entire world benefits from, from our science and research that comes out of pharma pharmaceutical manufacturing um, organizations, we all benefit from those uh, developments, but they come with a price tag. And that price tag in, in this case is untenable for the system. So, I, I, I mean, I think I knew the numbers that you were talking about when you talk about the percentages, but even hearing it so starkly is still shocking, let's be frank. Um, huge need, economic impossibility, I think is how I would define it, not least of all given that we have the most expensive system with you know inordinate amounts of waste uh, amongst any any other reasons for unable to afford, adding more cost is just not viable. Where is this going to go? How are we going to allow for this, given that, it, it, as you describe it, you're right, it is a public health emergency. It's, it's, it's an epidemic when you plot it in any of the forms that epidemic charts are shown on map. That's right. I believe obesity is a chronic disease. I believe that it requires lifelong treatment, whether you are successful in your weight loss or not. Uh, the predisposing genetics and the behavior and the risk is is there regardless of whether the person loses the weight. It's absolutely an epidemic, as you might consider any other disease. And where we go from here and what the solution is, this is why I'm so glad I have a front row seat is because really exciting and important conversations are happening uh, all across the healthcare eco ecosystem. I, I, I tend to spend my time with uh Health, health insurance sponsors, employers in the in the private insurance uh, space. I know it's happening at the government level as well. What are we going to do about drug pricing? How are we going to uh, think about generic entry? Uh, how are we going to think about targeting access to medication to populations that will most benefit? How can you utilize data to do that? And then finally, as we think about access to these uh, medications, how do we think about discontinuation? What's the duration of the therapy that makes sense? Should someone be on it for their entire life? Should they be on it for a short period of time? And what does that look like? And then from the government perspective, you know, you could look at some historical examples like hepatitis C medication and insulin. Is there a role for the government in a public health emergency to enter and say, hey, we're going to get involved in pricing discussions and we're going to implement some bespoke reform. We've seen that, for example, with dialysis, where the government stepped in and said, this is life-saving, life people need access for it, we're going, to, um, we're, we're going to figure it out. 
So I think all of those things are possible. It's an enormously dynamic environment. And we've already seen some big moves. So for example, uh, Lily, uh, um, when they came out with Terzepatide, they uh, implemented a savings card to drop the price to $500. The price at the time through Wagovi was upwards of 1000 plus. And so we're already seeing some big moves on the manufacturing side to meet the price um, expectations of the market. But uh, even at $500, it's unaffordable. So uh, we've we've talked extensively about the backdrop to this. And, you know, for me, it sort of leads up to the fundamental point here, which is it's not a silver bullet. It's never going to be the ultimate solution. And, you know, to that point, you have spent a large part of your career focusing on fulfilling the requirements to deliver healthcare to the chronically sick. And I think prior to any of these uh, solutions being successful, Tell us a little bit about that and how that needs to be incorporated, because I think that to me is part of the essential conversation that you're describing, um, you know, for us going forward. Thanks for that question. I, I've always felt that the most important parts of healthcare happen outside the walls of hospitals and clinics. It's in our communities, it's in our households, it's in our um, homes and the way that we act and behave. So my interest in using technology in the home has really been around behavior change. And so behavior change is really what is the epidemic. It's our built environment. It's how we manufacture food. It's how we use food uh, for more than just meeting our metabolic needs. It, it, it meets some emotional need in our lives. If we don't address those fundamental components of the epidemic, we're really just putting a Band-Aid. And that Band-Aid, once it's removed, the GLP as an example, the weight will come back. And we've mm. already seen that. Two-thirds of the weight lost comes back a year after discontinuing uh, Wagovi. And we're seeing similar results uh, with Zepbound and Terzepatide. And so I really believe that behavior change needs to be more embedded in our healthcare in general as a core part of what we do, and in particular within obesity. So if you were to pick one thing or two or three, you know, but just a short list of key things that need to be incorporated, I mean, you mentioned a bunch of them, and I, I you know, I, I, I almost, I, I'm... I'm depressed when I think about food and our food supply and what that <laughs> delivers to us. I, I just am. I mean, I, I'm, we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Where would you start? What would be your policy changes to all of this? Yeah, so I think the first thing that I would change is uh, access to fresh and healthy food. Uh, food insecurity in the U.S. and worldwide is an enormous problem. It, the lower your income, the worse your food quality. Uh, we seem to have solved in many places, not everywhere, uh, the issue of malnutrition, but we're, we're, over, we're, we're sort of overnourished, not malnourished with unhealthy food. So mm. I would solve there. And then the second piece is activity. When you look at obesity, um, weight maintenance in the in a post GLP world, um, activity is number one. We are so sedentary. Work from home, zooming for work, zooming for school. Uh, we have made everything so convenient that uh, 
our, our communities are unsafe, there aren't places to move, we don't have access to sports and um, movement, we work too much. So movement is, is the other piece. So food quality and movement. You know, it's funny you bring that up. And it's only as you're saying that, that it, it I, I recall when I first moved to this country, one of the things that I, I really genuinely loved was the convenience factor. But it came at a price that I don't think I fully understood at the time, which was, you know, weight gain and lack of activity. You have to sort of take time out to go do this. You know, joining a gym was not a thing that I necessarily did when I came from other places. So, I, I you know, I think those two for me, if we solve that, we might actually solve the, well, man, not solve <laughs> the old obesity problem, but certainly make a big, big dent in it. So I, overall, I think, I, you know, I'm excited because there's a new tool in the uh, box to apply for this. I think people struggle and, you know, I've seen it with many friends and, you know, the challenges of sort of breaking that cycle. We see the sort of yo-yo activity. It sounds like there's still a bit of that. But now the renewed focus and I think, you know, the opportunity for the policy so that we can make this not just available to those that can afford it, but accessible to everyone and deliver it in a way that all can access it, I think, you know, represents a tremendous opportunity to break this cycle and, you know, combat this uh, epidemic of obesity. Unfortunately, as we do each and every week, um, we've run out of time. So just remains for me to thank you for joining me on the show. Carolyn, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. 